0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 311th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by Succession on HBO. The second season was hailed by critics as the best show on TV, as well as beautifully written and superbly acted. Four-year SAG Awards consideration in all categories, including outstanding performance by an ensemble in a drama series. My guest today is a bona fide American hero. He is a Hungarian-born Jew who emigrated to the United States as a child, served in the U.S. Army during World War II, became an investigator of Nazi war crimes as the war wound to a close, and then, after it ended, at the age of just 27, became a prosecutor at one of the 12 Nuremberg trials. And today, just a few months shy of his 100th birthday, is the last surviving Nuremberg prosecutor. He spent his post-Nuremberg career as a highly respected and successful lawyer. He was instrumental in the creation of the International Criminal Court in The Hague back in 2002, and he is now the subject of an excellent documentary feature about his life from the Canadian filmmaker Barry Average and the U.S. distributor Vertical Entertainment called Prosecuting Evil, The Extraordinary World of Ben Ferenz, which was greeted with widespread acclaim following its premiere at the 2018 Toronto International Film Festival and its theatrical release on February 22, 2019 currently stands at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, and is available for streaming on Netflix. Mr. Ben Ferenz. Over the course of our conversation at H-Club LA, the 99-year-old and I discussed his remarkable experiences during and in the years immediately after World War II, how people like Hitler rise to power, and why an international criminal court is the right way to bring them to justice, what his thoughts are on Donald Trump and his administration's controversial conduct, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. ferenz it's a great, great honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for doing this. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? I was uh, born in a little village in a country that
1: no longer exists. <laughs> it was Transylvania. Yes. <laughs> between Hungary and Romania. Right. My parents were immigrants. They were farmers. The house in which I was born had no running water. It had no electricity. And the toilet was a hole in the backyard. Uh, if you wanted to get water, you had to take a pail and go down to the middle of town and dig it out of the uh, well. They were fleeing from poverty and persecution. Whether it was Hungary or Romania made no difference. They persecuted the Jews in both countries. And how observant was your family? Uh, My family came from an Orthodox Jewish family, and uh, my father remained Orthodox throughout his life. Uh, Even if he took a glass of water, he put his hand over
0: his head to be covered, which Always puzzled me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you share? I mean, you came to America at quite a young age, not speaking English, passed, I believe, by the Statue of Liberty. When was it that you arrived in New York, and what did it mean to you to be there?
1: We arrived in New York in December of 1920. I was then nine months old. Mm-hmm so that my observations of the time are <laughs> second. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but it was a time when there was a lot of immigrants and a lot of fleeing from persecution in Europe. We did go by the Statue of Liberty and we'll send me your tired, your poor, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Mm-hmm. Send these to me. That light, I'm afraid, has gone out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I very much regret it because... It was our
0: lantern of liberty. Speaking of the immigrant experience, which I think is part of what you may be referring to when you say the, the light has dimmed or, or gone out, when you and your family were settling in New York in those early years of your life, how were you welcomed? I mean, you again, you you personally, I know, and I imagine the same was true of your family, did not speak English, as as I said, and yet somehow you... Excelled enough and had enough people believe in you to not only go to college but to wind up with a scholarship to Harvard Law School. How do you explain that? It was a big jump
1: coming in as an immigrant, and it's true, the parents didn't speak English. My father had apprenticed as a shoemaker, and he assumed that when he got to the United States, he could use a cow's hide and make cowboy boots out (laughs) of it. No one told him there are no cows in New York and no cowboys, (laughs) and he was very fortunate to find a fellow Jewish conservative who gave him an opportunity to become a janitor in one of three tenement houses that Mm -hmm. he owned. And he was given the privilege of taking his family and sleeping in the cellar in exchange for janitorial duties. And so you grew up in that cellar? I grew up in that cellar, and uh, I recall that the walls were always wet, and I didn't quite understand that it was explained to me that's because if we were in below the foundation, mm-hmm. and this was part of the foundation. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a rather rough life. Mm-hmm. I would say I was raised in poverty. I didn't recognize it as an infant, mm-hmm. but I soon uh, experienced that
0: in the later years. So the fact that you were a great enough student to earn a, a scholarship out of that, basically, and to go to Harvard, what did that— represent to you and your family It must have been a huge deal well it was a huge
1: deal what it began with the my eighth grade teacher asking me to my parents to come in my parents had been divorced by that time because they had been married before they were born their <laughs> parents had agreed if you have a boy and I have a girl they'll get married it <laughs> sounded very nice but it didn't work out very well and uh, my mother was called in to talk to the principal and my eighth grade teacher and uh, the teacher said you know you have a gifted boy we had no idea what she was talking about I thought she was going to complain to my mother about my behavior (laughs) but nobody gave us any gifts yeah and she said he should go to college we didn't know anybody who went to college Mm -hmm. and we said well what's involved in all that And they said, well, we can send him first to a special high school in New York, Townsend Harris High School, which was the only one of its kind in the country, I understand. And if he passes the courses there, he will automatically be admitted to City College, and it's free. So that was the big incitement
0: and the path I finally took. And when you wound up at Harvard, I know it was another sort of fateful thing that happened there that one of the people you studied with— was basically one of the world's leading experts on what today we would call war crimes, right? Yes, I would say
1: that would be reasonably accurate. I had uh, decided early on that I wanted to follow a career in crime prevention, mm-hmm. because where I was raised, it was Hell's Kitchen. Mm-hmm. For a reason, it was called that. Mm-hmm. And there was a high-density crime area. When I went to law school, I was also I would say I got my scholarship at Harvard Law School for the first exam on criminal law. Mm. I may not have known a lot of business law, but I knew about crime and Mm -hmm. criminals Mm -hmm. because I'd grown up with them. (laughs) So it was quite a jump for me. That, of course, led to uh, my studying with Professor Sheldon Gluck, who was their chief known criminologist. And uh, when we got into the uh, Army, he, in fact, recommended me to the Army, where they had recognized my talent as a Harvard honor graduate of Harvard Law School, mm-hmm. and they made me a private in the artillery, about which I knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> and so it was quite a relief when, after about a year in the artillery, I was taken out and uh, sent to the Judge Abacus section of General Patton's Army, the Third Army. And I was told that my name had been forwarded to, from Washington, and they had instructions to set up a war crimes branch. And the colonel who interviewed me said, what's a war crime? <laughs> they had no idea. Right. So I believe I was the first man in the United States Army in
0: World War II to deal with the question of war crimes. Amazing. And I think we should note that when America's involvement began with what we now call World War II, you were at Harvard and— wanted to enlist at that time, I believe, from what I've read, but you were too young. I assume that was the main issue, or what was the— the main issue for uh, wanting to enlist, I wanted to be
1: in the Air Corps Mm -hmm. because I thought, well— in the Army, you able to end up with broken bones and crippled and all that. That didn't appeal to me. No. But at least in the Air Corps, if you were shot down, that would be the end of the story. <laughs> and you might even learn a trade. Right. So uh, I was eager. I did apply to the Air Corps, and uh, they measured me, and they said, Your feet won't reach the pedals. You had to be five foot four, and I was only about five foot two. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they ruled that out. And I said, Well, how about a navigator? And, well, they tested me for that, and they said, well, If we told you to bomb Berlin, you'd probably end up in Tokyo. (laughs) So they turned me down for that, too. And I finally ended up in desperation after trying all kinds of other things. I was buck private in the 115th AAA gun battalion. And that's where you spent 43 through Christmas 45, right? Yes, that was the unit I was with when we landed at Normandy Beach. Uh, When we went through the Maginot Line, we went through the Siegfried Line, across the Rhine driving a jeep on a pontoon bridge where you could just be dumped into the water at any time, and the final Battle of the Bulge. And I was highly rewarded for that when I got my honorable discharge as a sergeant of infantry, and I was awarded five battle stars for having been
0: there for the five major battles of World War II without getting killed. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you for your service, obviously. uh, That's an incredible thing that you did. And I guess when you went home after Christmas, 45, I bet you did not think in your wildest dreams that you would be headed back to Germany anytime soon, right? That's correct. I
1: certainly did not have that in mind, and uh, I was just looking for a job, like 10 million other. the... People, I had gotten out of law school. I had passed the bar, but the rest of my experience had been doing every filthy job the hundred fifteen <laughs> gun battalion figure out for me. Right, uh, cleaning the toilets and washing the rooms and so on. The only good story was uh, when I saw Molly and Dietrich in a bathtub. And that people wanted <laughs> to. <laughs> you saw her in a bathtub. You know, one of my jobs was the orderly of the toilets. And Marlena was coming and entertaining the troops, and uh, she wanted to know if she could have a shower, but we had no showers. It was in a cassette of the German army, and I escorted her to the bathroom, and then I waited a reasonable period of time such as five minutes. I assume by that time she was in the tub and I opened up the door and I walked in and sure enough, there she was in all her splendor. (laughs) And I immediately retreated and said, oh, pardon me, sir. And I walked out. And uh, when she came out, she said, you must be a diplomat. I said, no, 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 I'm no diplomat at all. I "I happen to be a, a lawyer, but I said, what makes you think I'm a diplomat? She said, the way you said, sir, <laughs> that, that was a very diplomatic thing That's so we had funny. a good laugh and she said you know i'm invited to lunch with the general Patton and his staff you come with me i said well we'll have to find some excuse so if they ask you who am i you tell them we come from the same country <laughs> and uh, and then of course they would let me go with you and uh she said, what country shall we say? Well, say Europe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so you got to go. So we went and we had lunch together with General Patton and some of his key officers. Oh, my and, God. And uh, he ignored her during the whole luncheon meal. I was chattering away there. She gave me one of her calling cards with her phone number on it and filmed just rides again. Yeah. And then Patton came up at the end of it and he said to take my arm. And he walked off with her, And from which I
0: reaffirmed what I had already seen, rank has its privileges. <laughs> <laughs> That's an incredible story. Well, I want to ask you about one of your duties, which I believe was before you returned to Germany, so that first period, I, I think chronologically, before you came back to America and got married and all of that. But you talk about it in the film, how it's maybe the most powerful moment in the documentary when you bear witness to what you saw when the concentration camps were being liberated, and you go in as an investigator to sort of see what transpired there. And I only ask because I think you would agree, you've probably heard the same as me, that shockingly, there's a growing number of people who have either not heard or do not believe that what happened at those camps actually happened. And it's very disturbing because, as many people say, history can repeat itself and if we don't learn from it. And so I know that back stateside, when footage of that was taken, I believe General Eisenhower asked the movie theaters to show that newsreel footage of the camps being liberated because he felt that Americans needed to see it to believe it. And in fact, the narrator of those newsreels would say literally, quote, look, don't turn away, close quote. You actually are one of the few people around today who can say that you saw that with your own eyes, and I just wonder how that impacted you.
1: Well, if there were some people who still believe it didn't happen, they should have their head examined. Mm-hmm. Either they're vicious or stupid. Mm-hmm. It certainly happened, and it's evidenced in a thousand ways by this time. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum has all of the necessary evidence left over from uh, the atrocities in the camps. You have witnesses who have survived the camps. You have people like me, whose job was to get in there fast with the army and seize the evidence of the crimes for future war crimes trials. The Germans have done a better thing on that once in the meantime with the new German government. And that is, they've taken the minutes of the meeting and a conference which took place in a lake called the Banzier, uh, which is outside of Berlin where the topic was finishing the Union, which meant to destroy all all the Jews. And you had some top German officials sitting there and discussing, well, how do you go about doing that? And they said, well, we better build a railroad to take them out of Germany because the German public probably wouldn't stand for it. Build lines out to uh, Poland, places place like that. And uh, we set up extermination camps. We would kill them on the way, no, no, you should use something cleaner, you use gas, and they have all these detailed discussions. And supposing a man was married to a Jewish woman, and, but he wasn't Jewish, kill him anyway, because the Jewish blood is in him. And if his grandfather was Jewish or whatever, kill him. And they had all these things written out in these minutes of the meeting in German, top secret, of course. The German government after the war, to their credit, took all these pages and set them down in the Wannsee itself. The building itself was returned. And uh, on the wall, they had the pictures of all of the participants in it. Some of them had been killed in the main, some had disappeared, some were in captivity. And so anybody in his right mind can go there and see, this is a post-war German government, and read page by page. It's in German, but I'm sure there must be translations as well somewhere. The methodical planning by top people in the government to totally annihilate people because of a Jewish blood anywhere in their line. And anybody who says it doesn't happen, they won't say that to me. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, pop them right in the nose. <laughs> so what stays with you? I guess we're now almost, wow, 75 years since the liberation of the camps, right? What stays with you the longest about that? I can't answer that, because everything
1: stays with me. It's not a matter of stages. The camps were essentially similar. This organization was similar, and uh, the method of extermination was similar in most camps, where you didn't have a crematorium, you just t- took them out in the woods and have them dig a hole, and then shoot them and throw them in the hole. That could be quite a big hole, as there was in uh, and. Uh, part of uh, Poland, near Kiev, where they killed over 33,000 Jews in two days on the high holidays, 29, 30, September 1941. Okay. And uh, so the methods of killing them varied. Some just took the infant, smashed the head against a tree, save ammunition. My lead defendant later on, he said he didn't like that to him. When he saw an infant was crying and the mother was holding the infant to her breast, He told his men to aim for the infant because then you kill both of them with one shot and you save ammunition and they're quieted. So, the technique of uh, annihilating a whole people, and the Wannsee Conference listed 12 million people. Mm -hmm. They took them by country, by country, how many uh, people there were in each country. Their intention was to kill all of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was their plan. So the methods of killing them, by gassing them, by dumping, by shooting, by strangling, by pushing them, choking them to death, they varied, but the result was still the same. And which were the camps that you personally were at? Well, the first one I I got was a fore camp of Buchenwald. Uh Uh, That was shortly after I got there. That Eisenhower came. He was the commander-in-chief of the forces there. Uh And... uh, we had a little forecamp camp called of O. H. R. D. R. U. F. Yes, yes. The main camp was Buchenwald, and they farm them out to some of the nearby regions. But the goal was identical, total annihilation of the Jewish people because of their tainted blood. And uh, it occurred to them that they might lose the war. When it began to occur to them, they said, hey, what are we doing killing all these people? We can use them as slave laborers. We can work them to death. Uh-huh. And so they announced they have a work program, and countries like IG Farben put up the money to build Auschwitz, which was one of the bigger camps. And uh, they then had the free access to all kinds of skilled labor, whom their uh, goal was literally finishing durch Arbeit, which meant to destroy them through work. And they would
0: work them to death until they starved, and then they would kill them. We mentioned earlier that you were in Europe until christmas forty five so that's well after I guess a lot of the liberation had taken place. so I'm wondering it would have been very understandable if there were acts of retribution once the Nazis had fallen. Did you see any of that as well? Yes, uh, is the answer to your question,
1: but it's a little bit deceptive because the inmates were not set on on vengeance. Mm-hmm. They were set on trying to keep alive. And uh, when I came into the camps was to get there as fast as possible because if you waited a few more days, it'd be, all the records would be destroyed and uh, the whole area was looking different. So I got in there as fast as I could. I'd go to a Commander of the tank battalion that had captured the area, and I'd go up to him and I say, "I'm here acting on orders from General Patton, carrying out a policy of the United States. I want ten men immediately to surround the Schreibstube, which is the office where they kept the records. Nobody goes in around without my permission." He'd say, "Yes, sir." Now, it happened, but there was seldom that the inmates were strong enough or in a position to grab some of these SS men and kill them. Mm-hmm. I've seen that happen in equal measure for what they were doing to the Jews. They beat them. Uh, I had the one case, only the one case in my experience, where they caught one of the SS guards and uh, they beat him up and then they tied him to the gurney which they used for sliding bodies into the crematorium. They put him into the crematorium they heated him up and then took him out again, beat him up again, put him in again until he finally was roasted, and uh, then they th- threw him away. But uh, that was rare, mm-hmm. and uh, it was so hopeless in their eyes that it didn't occur to them to, you know, mount a
0: opposition. I didn't see any trace of that mm-hmm. actually. And when you were at the camps, you know, during the time you were there, were you already wondering to yourself? what is going to become of the Nazis who have been captured? Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. My assignment was to get in there and get evidence of the crimes because Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin had agreed that the perpetrators would be put on trial. And uh, my job was to... Know what evidence is available, what evidence you need to convict. Get the guy who was responsible because if you have the evidence, and you haven't got the perpetrator, you got nothing right. So I had to do that while the war was still
0: on, and so, I was still in uniform. so you are back stateside after that. What was your first realization that at just twenty seven which is an incredible thing that you were wanted to serve again this time as a prosecutor. I don't believe that you had Had you ever prosecuted any case anywhere? No. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I returned
1: after the war was over. I returned to the United States, and I was like the 10 million other GIs looking for a job. And I put job applications all around, and uh, I got an answer from the Pentagon, dear sir, they never had called me sir before, please come to Washington, we'd like to talk to you. I went to Washington, and uh, there I was interviewed for another job. And what had happened was, while the war was still on, the Army itself had been conducting military commission trials. Well, the guards in the concentration camps that we had liberated, and they'd have pretty speedy trials, line up 20 or 30 in a room of the guards, and uh, who you got in this pair of yes sir, you realize that crimes were committed, not me, oh no, I was not there, I was the cook, I was so and so. So those trials were going on, but there was an important additional, the major trial was the four powers the Americans, the British, the French, and the Russians trying, they called them major war criminals, and there were only 22 of them. But there was recognition that just taking this snapshot of these few leaders doesn't give you the answer to the question, how could a civilized country like Germany tolerate and encourage and carry out the atrocities which were carried out? And so... They decided to have subsequent proceedings, as they call them, in addition to the International Military Tribunal, the International Quadripartite Trial, and the U.S. Army Military Commission Trials. They were going to have 12 additional trials, and they would take the leading... Parts of society, the doctors who perform medical experiments, the lawyers and the judges who perverted the law by guilty verdicts against innocent people, the industrialists who built the concentration camps for slave labor, the foreign ministry, which tried to cover up. All of these were going to have separate trials. And the war being over, they had no money for the, to the job. So they took a man who later became my law partner and dear friend Uh, He was a colonel in the Army, Telford Taylor Uh was his name, and uh, he was promoted to general, and he was directed to set up these subsequent proceedings. And uh, I went to Washington. There I was interviewed by a career Army man, and uh, while there he said, somebody else wants to talk to you. It's General Taylor, he was then a full colonel, he had later promoted to General, mm-hmm. and Taylor said he'd been appointed by Truman to set up these twelve trials, and he said i've uh, know about your background, and he said, "I don't have only one question: I see from your record that you're occasionally insubordinate <laughs> and I said, "That's not correct, sir. I'm usually insubordinate. <laughs> I don't obey any orders that I know are stupid or illegal." <laughs> I said, but I'm checking up on you, too. Yeah. yeah. He was also a Harvard man. Right. And I said, I don't think you'll give me that kind of orders. He smiled said, OK, you go with me. And so I was hired. He said, look, you've in, been in the fields. You've been in the camps. You know what it's like. We have suspects, but we have no evidence. And suspects suspect with no evidence, you got no trial. Mm-hmm. So you know what evidence is necessary. You know how to get it. I'll hire you. You raise up the evidence for all the other 12 trials. I said, okay. So uh, I called up my then girlfriend, and to whom I was happily wed for 74 years without a quarrel, she has since recently passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. And I said, I called her up, I said, How would you like to go to Europe for a brief honeymoon? She said, I'd love it. She'd been waiting patiently <laughs> while I went to Harvard, and when, when I went to the Army. And uh, so we were wed and intending to go for a brief honeymoon. Well, I got to Germany and began to set up, I hired about 50 people of different caliber. And uh, one of my researchers came in and he uh, gave me a list of reports. Now these were called reports from the Eastern Front mm-hmm. of the Einsatzgruppen. The Einsatzgruppen is a word nobody could really translate and you couldn't identify what they were supposed to do. Einsatz means action group and his groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, their assignment, was to kill, without pity or remorse, every single Jewish man, woman, and child. They could lay their hands on And doing the same for the gypsies and anybody else that they thought might be a future threat to Germany. That was the assignment. Mm -hmm. And when they got to the front, that's what they did. And every day, they sent a report. And it had on it the name of the commander, the time, the place, the number killed, top secret, and I had them all. And uh,
0: they had been consolidated in Berlin. And in all, all the years since then, I bet you've never been, never had a case that was so right in front of you like that, right? Well, it doesn't exist yeah, that people would list. Yeah. I sat down and with a little
1: hand-adding machine, yeah. I, added, well, I added a million people murdered, a million people, men, women, and children, By more these... people than you've ever seen in your right, life. Right, right. I said, that's enough. Yeah. I took a sampling. I flew down from Berlin to Nuremberg. I said to General Taylor then, I said, General, we have to put on a new trial. Uh-huh. He said, we can't. What well, you can't? I have here a clear-cut case of mass murder on an enormous scale. He said, the Pentagon is not going to prove it. The budget has already been approved, and uh, they're not very keen on it, and uh, I'm sure I can't get permission. I said, we can't let these guys go. And he said, can you do it in addition to your other work? And I said, sure. He said, "Okay,
0: you do it. And so that's how you wound up. And so it came to pass. And that's how you, you become at 27 the chief prosecutor. I was the chief prosecutor
1: in what was certainly the biggest murder trial in human history. I had no experience. I had never been in a courtroom before. But I knew my stuff. Uh, you certainly <laughs> did. And it's
0: an amazing thing in the documentary to watch the the footage of you standing on the books. Yeah. And do you remember what you said? Oh, yes.
1: Oh, yes. I had, uh, well, I had these 22 defendants. I had assigned investigators for each case and uh, to sign to each individual. I said, I want to know everything about them, when they were born and what they've done ever since, every day <laughs> of their life. I didn't want to talk to any of them, mm-hmm. but I had a fine selection of what I had. I had, a good crew. The day before the trial, I asked myself, what am I going to ask for by my way of death, about sentencing? Because it was expected that the prosecution would recommend sentencing. And I thought, how can I talk about justice when I have 22 defendants?" and I have a million victims. I said, there's nothing I could do which would give me a sense of, ah, last justice was done. And uh, I was troubled by that. And I thought, well, if I can get a principle of law, which would be binding for everyone, that would be important. And uh, the victims had been murdered because they didn't share the race or the religion or the ideology of their executioners. And I thought that was a horrible thing then, I still do. And I asked the court to affirm, I didn't recommend death sentence for anybody. I asked the court to affirm as a matter of criminal law, the right of every human being to live in peace and human dignity, regardless of his race or creed. I said, if I can get that, that would be a step forward. Absolutely. And if these men be acquitted, then law has lost its meaning, and man must live in fear. Mm-hmm. And uh, that stuck with the judges. Yes. And they gave me that judgment. And, of course, it's been thou- cited a thousand times since Absolutely. then. And well,
0: uh, you know, it's an, an incredible that's what I'm in the process of doing. thing to watch, an amazing thing to watch. I guess what I wonder, thinking back, or, or you know, when you think back about this, did, did it— surprise you that these men who were captured, they had no nowhere to go, they were they knew they did what they did. It sounds like at no time did anyone show any remorse. That is correct.
1: There was absolutely no remorse from any of my defendants, nor would I say did any German ever come up to me and say I'm sorry. And that uh, I regret that very much. But you have to put yourself into their shoes and uh I did. I was troubled, but most by my lead defendant was a gentleman. It was a gentleman, I'm sure. uh, Dr. Otto Ohlendorf, Mm -hmm. head of Einsatzgruppe D. And uh, his reports showed that his unit, under his direct command, had killed 90,000 Jews. And on the trial, he was asked, do you admit that your unit killed 90,000 Jews? He said, no. What do you mean, no? That's your report, yes? What are you denying? He you said, well, you, I knew that the men sometimes bragged about the body count. And so 90,000 was probably an exaggerated figure. Would you say 70,000, 80,000? Yeah, that would be more like <laughs> it, you know? And so bragging about the body count and then saying, with superior orders, my eye, you know, mm-hmm. it was not superior orders, and and there was self, they were claiming self-defense too. That was his defense at the trial, self-defense. Of course, the judges dealt with that defense, and nobody was attacking Germany. Germany attacked France, Belgium, Holland, Poland, etc. So it was a phony argument, and the judges said so, and they said, "What kind of a world would we have?" If a person believes his neighbor across the street has a gun, they may be threatening him, and uh, he goes across and kills the neighbor, his wife, his children, his grandmother, his neighbors, and so on, what kind of a world be? And so, Ollendorf was sentenced to death. Now, I heard the sentence at the time, and I heard more recently, the President of the United States, Mr. Trump, in his first address to the United Nations, HE SAID TO NORTH KOREA, IF YOU THREATEN US OR ANY OF OUR ALLIES, WE WILL TOTALLY DESTROY YOU. AND I'M WATCHING THIS ON TELEVISION, mm-hmm. AND I'M TALKING TO MYSELF, AND I SAY, MR. PRESIDENT, WHAT ARE YOU SAYING? Mm-hmm. ARE YOU GOING TO GO INTO THE COUNTRY AND KILL EVERYBODY? Mm-hmm. YOU TOTALLY DESTROY A COUNTRY? AND THIS DEFENSE, WHICH Ollendorf MADE, SELF-DEFENSE, PEREMPTORY. Anticipatory self defense mm-hmm. is what it is in detail. For that we hanged him. Mm-hmm. And you are advocating that as the policy of the
0: United States. Well, I know you've you've raised other concerns. I mean the, the border separation of parents and children, thousands. That, that's a crime against humanity. That's another problem. Mm-hmm.
1: That's another problem. I'm dealing now with the peremptory self defense argument. Yeah. And uh, made by the United States president on his first trip to the United Nations. Who the hell is advising him Uh. to tell him we have hanged? My title was Benjamin B. Friend's chief prosecutor for the United States. I did that in the name of the United States. And the president of the United States, after all of it, has been hanged. Arguing the same case. Well, that would require a familiarity with history, which you'd have to require familiarity with history, also some feeling of morality, morality or a feeling uh, yeah. of
0: anything. And it's 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 really a shame. Yeah, I, I will ashamed. ask you more about the present day in a moment, but I just am curious because you know a lot of people, I guess the way they were aware of the Nuremberg trials, probably newsreel footage, and then a lot of people know about Judgment at Nuremberg, the movie. What did you make of that movie?
1: Uh, I was involved with the. I uh, was man who wrote the script. Oh. And uh, he came to Nuremberg. By and large, it was a good film mm-hmm. and a good characterization of the sort of problems we dealt with. Mm-hmm. Marlene Dietrich did never go to bed <laughs> with one of the generals.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, she was in, I forgot. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, she was in the film. <laughs> so there was some fiction, you know, Hollywood trimmings on it. Yes. But basically, it showed the dilemma of yeah. some of the, the justice minister who yeah. didn't speak up during the trial. That was fairly accurate, mm-hmm. not the exact action, but the re- reaction mm-hmm. of some of the defendants saying, look, uh, okay. But nobody got up and said, I'm sorry. Yeah, The only one who came closest to it was Albert Speer, who was the guy in charge of uh, recruiting labor for the companies. Mm-hmm. He... His, his, his first aide, his, his deputy, was sentenced to death by hanging by the International Military and Was hanged. Speer, whom I got to know later quite mm-hmm. well, spent 20 years in Spandau prison. I was in Spandau prison in Berlin, very old prison. And the Russians, Americans, the British, and the French, they divided each one out a couple of months. When the Russians were on, it was tough for them, when the Americans and the French were the British one, it was easier. Anyway, when Speer got out of prison, I uh, wanted to talk to him, and I had written a book, which was in the draft stage still for Harvard University Press, called Less Than Slaves, which made the point that the forced laborers were less than slaves. A slave is somebody you try to sustain, but the forced laborers were being worked to death deliberately. And so they were less than slaves. And I tried to get compensation eventually. I did uh, from IG Farben, Krupp, Siemens, AEG, Telefunken, the big German companies. And they all had the same story. Oh no, oh, we, we, everybody worked for us. They were treated the same as every other German worker. And uh, they stuck to that story and uh, denied everything. So I went to see uh, when Spandau went when, when uh, Speer was through with his 20-year cent- sentence, I asked if I would, could meet with him. And he said yes. And I arranged a secret meeting at the Frankfurt Airport. I was a bit concerned that he's liable to say, Hey, I already served my time, get off my back. He didn't. He wrote a good book while he was in prison, where it showed some remorse. I said to him, Look, I've talked to all these companies. And uh, they all deny everything, but I have your records showing they had to request it from you. You had to approve it. They had to prove that they would not let the people escape. They had to build a camp to retain them. Just the opposite. How do you explain that? He said, it's easy. He said, they're lying. Mm-hmm. I, of course, I knew they were lying, but what yeah. he says, the yeah. report, important. I said, are you willing to... Make the corrections necessary. I said, I want to tell only the truth, absolute truth. If I've said anything which is wrong, I'd like you to correct it. Would you be willing to do that? He said, yes. He mm. said, good. Okay, and I wrote the manuscript, and he wrote on every page, Einverstanden. understand agreed, 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 didn't change a word. Mm. You
0: know,
1: mm. my hat goes off the hairspray. Yeah, he
0: did. The, uh, as, at, that as close as
1: they came. Yeah to anybody saying they were sorry. And, uh, and I understood that there was another way that they were saying they were sorry. Years later, they got a call from the German Foreign Ministry. Mm-hmm. They would like to give me their uh, Medal of Honor First Class. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was after I had negotiated with Chancellor Adenauer's government Whole reparations program. I said I'll let you know, mm-hmm. and I met with some of the survivor groups. I was in touch with many mm-hmm. of them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I said, "What do you think? The Germans want to give me their highest award. Oh, they got up some how. What are they crazy? They murdered my parents. They're going to get, get away with it by giving you a medal now. Have you no shame? So I would say most of the responses I got were negative. Mm-hmm. Turn it down. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it and I said, no, I'm going to accept it because this is their way of saying I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. If they pick out one guy who was really giving them the business, you know, for what they did, yeah. I couldn't think of anybody else better suited for them to do it that way. Right. So I accepted the medal. I didn't cheer them for their behavior, I interpreted that as a way of saying
0: that they regretted what it was in right. the past, you know. Do you feel that we as a society at large have, have properly learned from what you endured, all the things we've been talking about? I mean, I know that you fought as hard as anyone for the International Criminal Court, which came into existence, I think, in 2002 at The Hague, but has not even been bought into by the Americans. And meanwhile, genocide continues in parts of the world. And just have we gotten any better the answer to your question is yes, mm-hmm.
1: but, uh, but not better enough. Yeah. And why do I say yes? We have glorified war-making for centuries. You can't turn that around in the span of one human life. To combat that, that war is glorious, I had a correspondence between the Feldmarshal von Moltke, the hero of the Franco-Prussian War, and uh, Johann Kaspar Blunschli, a Swiss first professor of the University of Heidelberg, when they were discussing that question. Mm-hmm. And uh, Blunschli, I found a exchange of correspondence in the library of the Heidelberg University. I was combing through different things. And anyway, Bluntschli writes to von Molke, dear Feldmarschall, we met at the ball, you asked me what I'm doing. Well, what I'm doing now is I'm trying to formulate a new kind of approach to this whole problem, I think we, the nations, should come together and try to settle their differences through discussion and uh, have a conference and agree on what they can do without violence. And von Moltke replies and says, are you out of your mind, politically? What are you talking about? everything that's glorious in life, to give, die for your country, the comradeshaft of fighting in battle with your comrades, and all of the joy of coming together and being one group, you know, and you would have some guys going there talking about this, (laughs) you must be out of your mind. Oh my God. Now, these differences, I traced it back, were similar to the Uh Peloponnesian Wars, (laughs) Uh when Sparta was fighting with Athens, and they said, we have more boats, you give up or else. So this same difference, the glorification of war-making still exists, and
0: it's something I've been trying to turn around. Yes. But what would you say, you know, the the age-old, not age-old question, but it's 70-something year old question is. How could Hitler happen? How could a society let that happen? And yet... Hitler's happening again and again all around the world. So what's the answer? I can
1: look in the White House to pick a few out for you. Yeah. Yes. John Bolton is not a far cry from Hitler that we have... THE STRONGEST ARMY, WE SHOULD USE IT. WE DON'T NEED ANY FOREIGN. Thing. INTERNATIONAL LAW DOESN'T EXIST. I MEAN, OF COURSE IT EXISTS. WE HAVE, I MEAN, THE DIFFERENT POINT OF VIEW EXISTS. BUT BEING A DEMOCRACY, YOU WOULD EXPECT TO FIND THAT. AND BECAUSE THE MILITARY IS SO GLORIFIED, I'VE LECTURED AT WEST POINT AND MAYOR FORCE ACADEMY AND SO ON, AND I TELL THEM QUITE TRUTHFULLY, LOOK, YOU'RE IN THE FIRST LINE OF BATTLE. I'VE BEEN A SOLDIER. I've been a combat soldier. I know what the war is all about. And uh, I don't like to see you coming home in body bags, open pots. And the only way I know, to protect you, the military, stop war making. Why should we have such a system that we glorify war all the time, even now? We spend billions of dollars on creating new and better weapons to kill Mm. more people. If we spent that money to help the people instead of to kill the people, we wouldn't need the money. We wouldn't have the discontents which give rise to calls of terrorism and so on. Just use your common sense. Isn't it better to have peace than war? Mm-hmm. And if you want to have peace, how are you going to have it without a new institution of some kind? And the prohibition of this sort of thing we are now doing in cyberspace. Mm-hmm. From cyberspace, we can't today kill every person on this planet by cutting off the electrical grid on planet Earth. And they had that right when I told me that in secret by a general when we were meeting at a peace conference in St. Petersburg, Russia, at least 10 or 15 years wow. ago. And uh, now I can talk about it because they write a lot of right. things about it. And uh, we now have the capacity to kill everybody. So I'm talking to young people. People, it's your life that's at stake. No, mine. I'm 100 years old now. And... Uh, it's your life your life is before you and it's up to you to remember how did we
0: stop the vietnam war hell no mr president we won't go you go mm-hmm. and, is it uh, uh, is it i don't want to in any way put words in your mouth so i'm going to just set up the question and then you tell me if i'm way off base from what i what i think i'm uh, what i'm where i'm going here but i mean you've talked about the the border separations you've talked about the threats to other nations. You, I I can't imagine, are very pleased that we turn a blind eye to things like the very, all of our intelligence services agree that, that Khashoggi was killed by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. There are numerous, numerous things that have happened in the last three years. So under your, just strictly going by your definition of what war crimes are and what the International and what The Hague considers to be war crimes is? This is a very tough question. I hate to even have to ask it, but is Donald Trump a war criminal?
1: <laughs> Nobody is a war criminal until he's been found guilty in a fair trial. So I cannot answer your question as far as I know. He has not been put on trial. I would welcome the putting him on trial, yeah. and, uh, and I think it would be— unfair of me or anybody else to jump to that conclusion without a trial. Uh But there is a basis for suspicion, and uh, many people think that what he has done, I've said this uh, immigration policy is a crime against humanity. To take the children away from uh, their parents' infants Uh, is a violation of the existing statute for the International Criminal Court under the heading of other crimes against humanity and on the principles of common international law, which we don't recognize. John Bolton does not recognize. So uh, it reflects, however, the difference of opinion that exists. It's a great democracy. Of course, there are differences of opinion, and it's as it should be, but you should also be able to recognize which ones are in our interest and of everybody's interest. We can't say it's gotta be in our interest only and hell with you will kill you if, you if you complain. You can take that approach. It's not a humane approach. I think it makes no sense whatsoever. But for political reasons, diplomats and politicians will yield, and I personally attribute the United States opposition to the court. And it began with strong opposition to the court, and still there is strong opposition to the court, although it's functioning despite the opposition. The German president asked me that question. They had given me some medal there, too, for something else. (laughs) And uh, he said, what's happened to the United States? It used to be a liberal country. Now look what they're doing. And I said, well, the president of the United States gets elected uh, by a very small majority, and if he antagonizes the right wing, and he loses their vote, he doesn't get elected. Then there's nothing he can do. So they count noses and say how many are for this and how many are that, and as a result, as an accommodation to the right wing, the conservative wing, they do things which are not consistent with their other policies. They do it again and again. The Service Members Protection Act is a good thing he did in this particular field. They uh, passed a bill of law, John Bolton's influence, and his hand was there, saying that if the newly created International Criminal Court dares to try any American, we will be justified to use all necessary means in order to liberate them. All necessary means in languages, war. Mm -hmm. So he took the power of declaring war away from the Congress and put it in the hands of the president. And— The Dutch, many people at home, protested against that. Mm -hmm. And one of them called me up and said, Ben, we're going to have a protest against that. And uh, would you join us? They said, what do you have in mind? Well, we're going to have a hundred or more nations who have agreed to accept the court. We're going to set them up with flags and sandbags on the beach at Scheveningen, which is where near the court is. And uh, we're going to give it to the United States. Challenge them to come. We'll have a Dummy dolls there with bayonets fixed, waiting for the American attack to liberate them. I said, I will join you on one condition that I haul up the American flag and I'm the last picket. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I got to that point, everybody got up and said, United States, out of the United States. I said, look. I didn't come here to attack the United States. I came here and landed here wearing the uniform of the United States. I came here to protect the United States. The United States does not stand for the right wing. The United States, I want to salute the flag, join me, which ends with liberty and justice for all. Not liberty and justice just for our gang, right. but liberty and justice for all. Good applaud. No
0: press in the United States. Oh, God, <laughs> well. Let me ask you this. At this point of, of your life to have a film like Barry's yeah. come out, I, I wonder for you to see that, what that was like. And then part B, if you can just share with all of our listeners and me who are amazed that you are you are as sharp and vibrant as anyone I've ever seen at 100 or much younger, what is the and also I know uh you you seem a very positive upbeat person despite having seen so much evil, so just what's it like being studied in this way with a film, and what's your secret <laughs> there is
1: no secret <laughs> there is no secret I've lived a wholesome life i this morning, I did my usual 75 push-ups, among other things. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm very serious. I used to do 100, but they told me to slow down. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I do other things. I live a wholesome life. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I got drunk once in my life. <laughs> and never since, I was five years old. <laughs> Passover wine. <laughs> and, uh, but really, what really drives me, if I want to confess my weaknesses, is the trauma I had a discussion with God at one point. I've been in several of the camps, you know, and it's really quite horrible, quite horrible. And I said, God, how would you let this happen? How did it happen? Where are you still? And it's still happening. I'm still waiting for an answer. But I didn't wait for an answer. I said, Benny, try to change it. And so I've spent my life trying to change it because to do nothing is no solution. To say it's difficult is no solution. I know it's difficult, but I see the progress, tremendous progress. There is an international criminal court. Yes. For their first case, they called me to come and do the closing remarks for the prosecution in their first case. I have no connection, I said, I am here to speak for those who cannot speak, for the victims. Nobody authorized me to do anything. I do it, my dictates of my heart and my conscience. And uh, so I've seen the progress and the recognition I'm getting also, not merely from this film of Barry, which I think is a great film, because it, it's moving in the direction I'm trying to move. People have got to think differently about war and peace. They have to be tolerant of compromise. They have to recognize that it takes courage not to be discouraged. That They have to begin in the cradle. They stop glorifying war and treat it as you would treat mass rape or something like that. It can be done. It is being done. It's happening. The court is functioning despite great difficulties. They can't get into the country where the crimes are being committed because the people in charge of the country are, are in favor of the crimes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's very difficult. And it will continue to be difficult, well. uh, particularly in the United States. United States policy has been to kill the court if you can. If you can't, stall and that has been a political conclusion of everybody in the White House, you know, all the way through. And at the last minute, they'll slip something in, you know, if they can. But uh, so it's a very difficult thing to turn around something which has been glorified for so many centuries. But it must be done. Yes. Because there'll be nothing left. And I can't stop because uh, what else is there to do? Am I going to go play golf or go, <laughs> go, go catch a fish and
0: put it back in the water? I mean, those things don't inspire me. Well, I, I will just say that uh, it's not often that any of us get to meet a, a real hero, and I thank you so much for all that you've done, and most importantly, and then also for doing this. It's a real privilege. Thank you very much.
1: Well, I would not say, well, you're welcome. I would say this. The ball is now passing to younger hands. Don't give up. I have three pieces of advice. One, never give up. Two, never give up. Three, never give up. (laughs) Ball is yours. Good luck, kids. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app of choice, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out all of the other shows that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network. Rebecca Ford and Rebecca Sun's Hollywood Remixed, Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Josh Wigler's Series Regular, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for listening.